Welcome again to the Hermeneutic Oval. As always, the Hermeneutic Oval is where we dive into things and then crawl back out, bringing along with us some sort of treasure we didn't know was in there, like an adventurer going into a dungeon and coming back with a treasure from a randomly rolled table. So today I'm diving into cosmogonies. If we had a hermeneutic circle, we'd have a more direct line, a circular line, of going in and disassembling and reassembling things to make sense of them. But here we are with an oval, so let's get into it. I'm a sucker for a good cosmogony, a Genesis story, if you will. Be it the Genesis story from the first couple chapters of the Bible, or the several other stories of the beginning of everything, which are found in other places in the Bible, or the Norse story of the beginning, where the first thing was formless ice, and out of that there was what? One person and one cow, which resulted in everything, or the Enuma Elish, or various other stories of how it all began. I'll tell you one of my cosmogonies here in a bit. I say one of because, as I said, I'm a sucker for a good cosmogony. I've made a few. I think the first one was when I was a senior in high school. It had these gods, not at all unlike the Greek gods, because that's what we were studying, and that was one of my inspirations at the time. The latest cosmogony was a creation myth that I planned to attribute to the inhabitants of the world called Eroaf. It's the world where the drow bark, because my Dungeons & Dragons players and I have banned dark vision. It's also a world where the magic is in short supply, and the Muggles reign supreme. But to me that world would really not be real enough, or have the background necessary to make it believable, without a cosmogony. For what's a story without a beginning? What's a world without a beginning? Is it a world at all? I think the inhabitants of any world need these kinds of stories to ground themselves in reality, even if the stories they tell are not strictly reality. I know I'm going to touch on something which is controversial, depending upon who you are. Myths are not explicitly real, but even when that is true, myths still, tr still tell truths. Let's hit the most glaring example. The story of Adam and Eve may not be the story of two people who actually lived on Earth. Scientists can find, if you rewind the genetic clock, there could have been a genetic Adam and a genetic Eve but they never may have lived in the same place and time. Yet it does seem that we are all related to such people. We can't quite say if those people were human or some other kind of hominin, and it seems like they lived hundreds of thousands of years ago, if not a little more, rather than the 4,000-ish BC that the Bible portrays if you add up the genealogies explicitly. But that doesn't mean the Bible is not telling the truth. That is the beauty of myth. It can teach us lessons about ourselves, the world we live in, and God or gods. The story does not have to be a historical or scientific narrative. The myths that I make up about this world of Eroaf are absolutely not true in a historical, real-world sense. Yet they resonate, because they could be true of people we know and are akin to narrative narratives that we are familiar with. As I said... The myths that I create have a lineage of myths, going back to the beginning of written human history, 
because I have some familiarity with them. You will see echoes of some other things within cosmogonies across every human culture. What does that mean? I'll leave that up to you. I haven't quite figured it out myself. But again, myths are beautiful. The United States has myths such as the story of George Washington chopping down the cherry tree. Even if that did not happen, and from what I heard it did not, even if it didn't, it still tells us that he was a truthful, trustworthy person. And it seems that was true for many things that we hear about that era and his deeds. We no longer keep the history books with a myth or legend of him being in battle and many people furiously trying to shoot him only to find their bullets all straying from the mark. That story implies that the hand of God was upon him, and, because he was president, certainly the hand of God was upon him to bring him to that post. Certainly the hand of God was behind the Americans winning the war. But that particular scene may have been apocryphal or embellished. Other nations also have myths, and in some cases we can be certain that they truly are myths. The story of William Tell, for example, has been proven false. The story of King Arthur is legendary and is believable, but has likely been embellished. That does not mean I don't love those stories. I also love the Norse stories of Leif Erikson and Eric the Red and those Vikings who came before them, discovering the New World bit by bit as they moved out from Norway to Iceland and Greenland and then this further off land they called Vineland the Good. These are myths we now believe to be largely true. It took many years to put together the archaeological evidence, but we've dug up the footprints of the Norse campsites in the New World. Also, for many stories in the Bible, we've found the archaeological evidence that the people described by, or people very similar, lived at that place and time. But I still find myself wrestling with this idea of how true each myth or legend or story within scripture is. And maybe there's a compromise, a position where these things are somewhat true. But I don't require stories to be true for them to gain a cherished place in my heart. My favorite movies, like The Crow, or Dune, or Flash Gordon, they're not true. But I hope that I can be the hero of my own story because of the inspiration I draw from these myths. We can have stories that we know not to be literally true, still give us truths. Take, for example, the many parables Jesus told. These were not literal stories of people. They were stories that he told for a purpose, just like the myths of the Greeks and the Just So stories written by Rudyard Kipling, and the story of George Washington and the cherry tree. These stories were told for a reason. You may not like that. People's opinions will vary. Take, for instance, the stories that we tell about Christopher Columbus, which, since the 1800s, have made him seem like a pretty good guy, a hero. And take that with a grain of salt, because the historical witness shows that he and his actions caused the extinction of the natives of the Bahamas. And in his own letters, written back to Europe, he bragged about enslaving people. He was a businessman. He had to tell that story for a purpose. He made himself sound great by the standards of the great people of Europe in his time, a set of standards few share today. Later on, we had a little ditty about how in 1492 Columbus sailed the ocean blue, and that made him sound good for our purposes as the United States of America. Let us not forget 
that in the late 1800s Italians were considered black and were as likely to be lynched as African-American people. So we needed an Italian hero, a national holiday that celebrated an Italian hero to help us put an end to that way of thinking. So what am I saying? Myths have their place, and they also have their time. But even outside their place and time, some myths, the truly great ones, can be inspiring because there's always an element of deep truth about the struggle that people have. Those who've studied literature and drama will know that there are some classic struggles, such as man against nature, man against himself, man against God, and man against man. I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two. But myths use these motifs, and so myths can be timeless. We have the story of Moby Dick, which can be used as a universal example of a man or woman or whatever a person wants to call themselves, chasing after a monster and nearly killing themselves in the process. So the story of Moby Dick, which was never literally true, although it's historical fiction, serves as a powerful myth, an archetype, or a metaphor. Even its first line, call me Ishmael, has become a trope. Myth has its place, a hallowed place. We need myth. Even in this era where we've fallen away from believing the stuff of the Bible, I'm speaking now of American culture and Western culture more generally, where we've fallen away from believing the myths of the Greeks and Romans, even the Norse or the Mahabharata, even now we need myths as much as ever. I would say that every presidential election, not unlike George Washington and his cherry tree, or Abraham Lincoln and his rail splitting, has some elements of myth involved. The campaigns paint a picture of a person, a hero, who can pull us out of whatever situation the nation is in. They have to or else we would not put our faith in them. They have to tell us their great qualities, whether it be strength, or honesty, or faith, or loyalty. They have to make this person out to be some kind of legend, and the opposing campaign has to make up a counter-narrative about how inept or corrupt their opponent is. It's these competing myths, these competing narratives, which feed our media-hyped decision-making process. We can talk briefly about the last presidential election, where Biden was made out to be an experienced and well-connected politician by his own campaign, and Donald Trump made himself out to be an experienced businessman who was connected to a different kind of ideal and was a strong negotiator and was the one to make America great again. Even that legend, that America was great, is a kind of myth. America has done things which were great every year of its existence, and I'd wager also, in every year of its existence, it has done some terrible things. If we were to weigh America on scales, like Egyptian gods would weigh the souls of people to determine if they were to go to the good place or the bad place when they died, I don't know where America would go. I don't know if our bad karma outweighs our good karma, or vice versa. That's not what I'm trying to say here. What I'm trying to say is that we all need myth. In order for us to have hope for the future, we need to at least believe that the next president will make this nation a bit better than it is today. We need to have hope that God is in control. We need to have hope that there's order where it seems like there's only chaos. We need to believe that a universe that began as a formless sea, whether you like the Hebrew version or an icy nothingness, if you like the Norse version or whatever, we have to believe 
that something better is coming along, that there is order. So, now that I've humbled myself by making reference to so many great myths throughout human history, and now that I've sullied our minds by bringing in modern politics, I give you my latest little myth, my latest cosmogony, the beginning of the world of Arawaf. A Mythical History of the World of Arawaf First, all was dark. Nothing existed worth knowing, and so there was no knowledge. And then there was a spark. No one knows where this spark came from. Perhaps it came from another universe or some great being. Or perhaps the spark itself was a great being. Some even say that this spark was the universe itself deciding that something worth mentioning should exist. Yet all scholars agree, this spark was the first thing worth knowing. And so it was. The spark began to light up the universe from the beginning. And so fire was the first element. As the fire burned, it needed something to consume. And so the fire created earth. And it needed somewhere to exude its perfume. So it created air. And then from somewhere else, perhaps the same origin as the spark, or perhaps somewhere other, water came to quench the fire. And so all the four initial elements of creation were present. And they've been battling and debating and wrestling forever since. But these four elements make up the universe, and from them are derived many powers, both natural and unnatural. Much later there were beings, gods as they are called, and these gods sought to shape these raw elements into something much more suitable for life and knowing and living. These gods may not have had forms yet, but at least they had intelligences. Just like the first matter in the universe was the spark of fire, the first intelligence in the universe was these sparks of consciousness within the beings we call the gods. And so the gods began using these primordial elements to craft the world, this world called Arawaf. And much later, as the world was cooling down from all of their labors, it was safe for beings such as men and elves and dwarves to live upon it. And so the gods created them, created some to mine the earth and some to craft, created some to dance and sing, created some to hunt, created some to plant. And since then, people have come up with many more occupations and specialties. But none of these would even exist if those primordial elements had not first existed and their minds would not have any shape at all if not for the gods. We owe all to the gods. Belathor was the first king among the race of dwarves. He built the mountains as high as you can see from the flat plain, for he wanted a place for his people to live in. The first elf, Quigoth, dug deep within the earth to get away from the dwarves, as distant from the dwarves as he possibly could, and over time his skin and the skin of his people became deep and dark, and that is where the drow were from. But later some among the drow took pity upon the dwarves, and thought that they could teach them many great magics, and so they came back to the surface and decided to live among dwarves and men. For the first several generations they were sensitive to the light, and the sunshine made their eyes hurt, but over time they became used to it, and over time their skin took on a healthier, above-ground complexion, and this is where the high elves and wood elves come from. Humans say that they are in appearance most like the gods, though this is often debated. Dwarves say they resemble them. Elves say that the gods more resemble them, 
and certainly there are other races which say similar things, but perhaps the gods are beings with no form, perhaps the gods are beings of many and varied forms, including not just the forms of men and elves and dwarves, but many others. I will tell you now of the three most magical stones in the planet of Arawaf. These are the stones of fate. These stones are the locus of magic in the world. They are not the source of magic, because the source of magic is beyond the gods and existed in the universe before them, perhaps even brought them into being, but it is not for us to know. Yet it has been known since the first times that these stones of fate were able to harness this magical power and to bring great and wonderful and terrible and destructive things into the world. Many battles were fought in ancient times over these stones. Elves possessed them at times, humans at times, dwarves at times. Sometimes they were split evenly and sometimes unevenly. There was even an age where vampires hid all three deep within the earth, trying in vain to stop these other races, particularly the less long-lived races, from warring in such a destructive way. But after that age, the stones were recovered. Sometimes dragons have claimed the stones from the smaller creatures of the world and held them aloft for a long time, standing in judgment over all of these races and looking down their snouts smugly at us for fighting over such things. But that is not the present era, nor the recent past. In the recent past, just a dozen generations ago or so, all three stones were in the possession of the elves, dwarves, and humans. And they shared a common culture, and they lived together, and they built great cities and castles and tunnels and crafted magical weapons. War was not unknown to them, yet it was just one more thing which fueled their creative spirits, and they constantly strove for the best quality of government and art and poetry and weapon craft. But that age, as all good things, came to an end. That age came to an end when the three stones were stolen and lost. They were stolen and lost by the muggles, who had decided that magic was too much for mortals to possess, and they hid them away for a few more generations until quite recently, when they found a way to open the breach into the other world. And it's in this other world that they found technologies which rivaled all of the magics and brought those technologies back. And even then, they were plotting to close the breach with the magic stones on that side to rob all of Arawaf of its greatest sources of magic. Many things occurred in this time period, which we will not get into here at this time, but let it be known that someone stole one of the stones. No one today knows who or where it went, but it's a good thing. That one stone remains in Arawaf. The other two stones were thrown through the breach just before it closed, and so the Muggles claimed a large victory, though not complete victory. And now the Muggles control Arkander and so many other cultures and lands of the world. A few have tried, and the generations since knocked them down a few pegs, including most notably the Drow, although the High Elves seem to be content to stay in their ivory citadels. Yet the Muggles are still today in control of so much of the world and the world seems to be running out of magic. The question is who will find the lost stone of fate? Will it be the muggles, and will they be successful in finally throwing it out of the world entirely to end magic and make technology in their culture supreme? Or will it be someone else who seeks the stone for another reason, either to make the world much greater or much worse than it is? The gods alone seem to know, and they are not saying. 
Well, I hope you enjoyed that story as much as I enjoyed recording it. That's going to be part of the background for a game of Dungeons & Dragons I'm starting with some friends. We built that story through a microscope session and some background discussions, and I'm getting really attached to the setting already. Again, thanks for tuning in. I hope that you will dive into something that challenges you, pick it apart, put it back together, and find some meaning, find some answers, find some peace. That's what the hermeneutic circle is about. That's what the hermeneutic oval is about. So, good luck on your journey. Come back soon.